0: Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And it's going to be a nice WIP Sunday today. The weather's going to be reasonable, a good day for going out for holiday shopping, although you want to make care- be careful that your credit card doesn't go into meltdown quite yet. There's still many days before present day. And when we come back in just a bit, sociologist, author, academic, Miriam Borai, her new book, Hurt, Chronicles of the Drug War Generation. If you're of a certain age, it's important that you understand what she has to say. All this and more coming up here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. And we're back, and we're talking the drug generation, the generation of people known as millennials and their chronicles of their use in the new book, Hurt. Chronicles of the Drug War Generation by academic author Miriam Borai. Good morning, Miriam Borai.
1: Hello, Solomon, Mr. Solomon. Peter, thank please. Thank you for calling. Um, Peter, thank okay. you. Okay. All right. Who is the
0: millennial generation you write about in the book?
1: Describe okay, well, I, yeah, I'm glad that you asked me that because I heard you say before uh, when you were introducing me that if you're of a certain generation, and actually this book is written for every generation, which is why I didn't mention the generation that I was interviewing in the book. Uh, the The people I were interviewing were age 45 to 65 when I was doing the interviews at in the late uh, 2009 to 2011, and that means they were part of the baby boom generation. And the reason I call them the drug war generation is because they grew up under the drug war. They became, uh, they were young adolescents and young adults when the drug war started officially in 1971, and then it intensified during their life. So I was looking at what was going on in their life and what the drug war policies meant to their lives as they became. Uh, middle-aged adults, and then older adults. And we can learn from what happened to them to save the next generations that are coming up now, that would be the millennials and Generation X, so that they don't have to suffer the same pain that happened to the baby boomers.
0: Okay, as I think of that generation, though, and the drug war, I think of two commercials. Mm -hmm. Um, This is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, the frying egg. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And the other yes. one is Nancy Reagan and just say no.
1: Yes. And tell me, did those commercials work? No. That's why I'm doing this study, because in the drug war, instead of stopping people from using drugs, it intensified it. And I wanted to find out why. And so I talked to people that had grown up and used drugs during that time to find out what was going on, because many people don't know this. That before we started the war on drugs, there was a theory called the maturing out theory by Charles Winnick. And what he found in the 60s, that the generation before the baby boomers, they stopped using heroin and other hard drugs by the time they were 35 or 36 years old. Why? Because they became involved in social roles, such as being a parent, working, working, And other social activities that took the place of drugs or they learned to cope with the problems that drugs they were taking drugs for so by the time they were 35 and 36 the majority of people that were narcotic users stopped using what has happened now is that they haven't in fact The older generation is the fastest-growing generation of drug users. As they continue to age, they continue to use drugs, and more importantly, some older people started using hard drugs. So I was looking at their lives. I did interviews with 100 um, baby boomers ages uh, 45 to uh, 65, and I asked for their whole life story. And what I found is that most of them had started using or were using drugs for pain and as they got caught by the criminal justice system and they were put in some kind of incarceration whether it be juvenile delinquency homes when they were younger or jail or prison as they got older they had a criminal record and this stopped them from fulfilling the normal social roles that people do during their life course which is eventually slow down the drug use, and enter society in some normal social role, such as being a parent, being a, a worker, and being a, a responsible person in society. They could not do this because they had a criminal record. You're implying,
0: then, that it's not the drugs, but rather the criminalization of drugs that is the
1: problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. The criminalization and also not actually... Um, addressing the problems that some people really do have serious problems that they need help with, and and typically it's a mental health issue, and not addressing that. Instead, putting them in jail, putting them in prison. I mean, now we know that drug use, chronic drug use, is a relapsing mental health issue, and now we're beginning, only beginning to address this for people that can afford it. But most people still have a criminal record or get a criminal record if they get caught using drugs. And if they're caught what they call dealing, which is usually just selling drugs so that you can support your own habit without mugging somebody, then they get a criminal record for sure because then they're dealers.
0: What are people using right now? Or what, are using, people, what, what did you find people were
1: using? Well, mostly heroin and opioids. But, I mean, I I interviewed people that were using any of what we call the hard drugs, so methamphetamine, cocaine, crack, heroin, opioid pills. And, you know, one, um, I wanted to let your audience know that this is really special for me to be talking to someone in Philadelphia because my brother was one of the first people that I interviewed. My brother was the reason why I started studying drug use, and particularly heroin use, when I got my Ph.D., because my brother was a heroin user since he was a teenager. And we were, uh, he was born in Philadelphia, I was born in Philadelphia, we were raised around Philadelphia. And he was, uh, he, he didn't want to rob people, so he robbed his pills from a pharmacy. And when he was caught, he was sent to juvenile delinquency home, and that's where he was until he was 18. And then when he came out, he uh, he wasn't using drugs, but he was using marijuana. Uh, Today we would say he was using it medically. And he got his first criminal record as an adult for marijuana use, marijuana possession. And after that, he started using heroin off and on. And eventually he um, was put in, in jail and prison. Record kept mounting, and he got 30 years in prison for bank robbery. So when he came out, I was actually doing this study that the book is written about. And he was one of, my, uh, one of the first people I interviewed for the study. He was in Philadelphia, and I, and I kept him in Philadelphia. I was in Atlanta at the time. And I, I kept him there because Mayor Nutter had just said that he was going to put a lot of money and effort into reentry programs. And so I thought, well, that would be good for my brother. He's been in and out of prison, literally, all his life. He just got out of a uh, twenty-five years in prison, and I knew that he needed more help than I could give him. So he went into a few programs in Philadelphia. Actually, he was in South Philly when he first came out, and um, none of the programs really helped. He, after a, I think it was a six-week program that he went through, and it was mostly things that he had already known how to do, like write a resume, write write a resume, how to look for jobs, how to dress, how to do interviews properly. At the end of this program, he was given a a suit that was too large for him and a list of places to go look for jobs. And I looked at the list, and all of them were um, jobs that he didn't need a suit for dishwasher, uh, short-order cook, cleanup man for construction. So he went to all of these. He called them. He went in person. And after two weeks, he went everywhere on the list and nothing. No one hired him. No one called him back. So I called the director of the program, and I asked him, uh, you know, what can Harry do now? His name is Harry. And he said, well... I'm sorry to tell you that your brother is unemployable. So I said, why did you give him, you know, six weeks of training if he's unemployable? And how many other people are like that? So he said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you, I'll give Harry a a list of what corners to go on so people can pick him up for construction work. And so that's what he did. He gave them a list of the different corners that people are hanging around and trucks come or construction workers come to pick them up for for day work. And Harry never got picked up. He was 58 years old, skinny. People were wondering what he was doing there. So finally, I came to Philadelphia and I, um, I went over to Pell Grant with him. Pell Grant is a uh, grant that allows you to go back to school, and uh, your tuition is paid. But it has something on it that uh, is important, and that's a um, work-study program. So Harry completed the Pell Grant. He did have a GED, so he got into the Philadelphia Community College, which is the greatest thing that happened to him. So he was in college. He got on the work-study program. He started uh, taking classes and working at the school. He worked in a few places at the school, and he liked all of them, but he particularly preferred the library because then he could be around people all the time. And he was doing wonderful. Um, I probably should talk about his drug use at this time. And I'm telling you his story, but the 100 other people I interviewed mirror his story at some point in every... And every uh, few years of his life, you could see other people going through the same thing that Harry was going through. And so I talk about Harry in the book, but I also talk about the other people that I interviewed and give you little snapshots of their lives showing that the same thing is happening to them all over throughout their lives. So Harry was able to um, stop using heroin after he started school, because before that, every once in a while, he would meet people on the street that he knew from before, and they would offer him drugs. And he would mainly use those drugs, he told me, from so he could feel like part of somebody. He had no friends when he came out, and these were a group of people that he knew, and he knew he could control it. He knew he wasn't going to be using it a lot. Number one, he couldn't afford it. Number two, he was also getting uh, urine tests at his uh, parole officer randomly so he he really didn't want to uh to be sent back to prison the one thing that he could not stop was marijuana because he said that he could not you know study without it because his life was so stressful he had been in prison for so many years and many years he was in solitary confinement which i don't know if your audience knows what that is but that has been um, called torture uh, by many of the people who studied, anyone who had been in solitary confinement for more than a couple of days, and so this left him with PTSD. It left him with stress. It left left him with anxiety, being alone, and so he used marijuana for that reason. Now, marijuana doesn't work for everybody for that reason, but I've heard quite a few people who told me that it that it did help them with stress and uh, and anxiety. So. He tried to not use marijuana when he, a couple of days before going to the parole office, uh, uh, the parole officers um, for a visit, uh, but one time he was caught with marijuana and the parole officer was going to put him back, back to prison. He, he said he was going back to prison. And so I called the parole officer and talked to him and he didn't want to talk to me. He said, uh, he said I'm not making a special case for your brother. So I called the parole officer's supervisor. And I told her the story I pretty much told you right now. I said, look, Harry was a heroin addict. That was his problem. That was why he was in prison for so long because he didn't want to mug people. He didn't want to rob houses. He didn't want to sell drugs. So instead he robbed banks because he thought at least they're insured and that's why he robbed banks because he couldn't get off of heroin. And he couldn't couldn't really live his life because there was no treatment at the time for him. So the parole officer's supervisor and oh I told her he was back in he was back in college right now because he couldn't find a job and so he's going to college to so he could get some kind of degree to help him find a job and the supervisor said tell your brother to keep going to college I'll talk to I'll talk to his uh, parole officer and she actually did talk to the prov- parole parole officer and changed the parole officer to someone else so that he could continue going to college
0: It's quite a story.
1: Yep. And you see, most people don't have an older sister with a Ph.D. PhD that that can call up the supervisor of the parole officer to help their brother not get sent back to jail, which is why I tell this story.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. We're talking with author, academic, Miriam Borai, Ph.D., her new book, that new book being about the chronic, her chroni, hurt, Chronicles of the Drug War Generation. Miriam, I need you to stay with me. i got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back, and we're talking the drug war, the baby boomer generation, and a whole lot more with academic author Miriam Bowen. Or I. And Miriam, did you ever wonder why Harry and not you? I assume you grew under, up under similar circumstances
1: oh yeah yeah well people do ask me that a lot yeah well he was uh there's a number of reasons he was um he was the uh first child he was a year and a half older than me actually and he was also a male and um i i was going to tell you when I, when we came back that i i look at the uh life it's called life course theory so i look at their entire lives and i look at transitions that happen in their lives over time and most of the people i interviewed there was something that happened in their youth or when they were children or or becoming teenagers, that was a, a an important transition, a turning point in their life. And I can identify the one of my brother. Uh, when we were, um, my, my father was an alcoholic, and uh, he often lost his job because of his alcoholism, so we moved a lot. And at one point in our lives, when I was only about um, 8 or 9, well, no, I was probably about 10 and my brother was 11, um, we moved to an area of Philadelphia that is now pretty nice, actually. But when we were younger, it was not uh, a good area. And um, in that area, there was an a, a elementary school that my father realized was uh, he didn't want me going to that. So he put me into the Catholic school that was nearby. But I guess he didn't have enough money to put my brother into the Catholic school. And so my brother went to uh, the public school. Um, I don't know. I wasn't at the public school. I don't know, but I know that my brother got involved with drugs at that time when he was 11 years old. And he used to hang out in the streets, on the the porch, and uh, people were smoking. And then I know that he was also hanging out with people that were using pills because I saw them uh, using it a few times. So that's when he started. Uh, using pills. And then we were only there for uh, less than a year and then we moved to New Jersey and then he uh, started using pills more and that's when he did the robbery at the pharmacy and was put into a juvenile delinquency home.
0: Did you ever ask him though why he started, what there was about it?
1: He was in pain. He was sad. He was he was hurt that, you know, there were many things that were going on in our family. Our father was alcoholic and uh and he, this is what gave him um, relief. This is his coping mechanism. I mean, this is, he's not the only person in the book that has said this. Uh, another, another young man had an accident. Two, two, two men that I talked to had accidents. One of them uh, shot his mother's head off by mistake when he was 14 years old. Mm. And he was still using heroin for that reason and uh, to cope with the pain. He never he never did get proper uh mental health uh counseling or for what happened he was put in jail he was put in prison so another it, man uh, shot his best friend by accident there was a they it just picked him up and and they found a gun under the under the seat of the car where the father i guess had put it and he thought it was a fake gun and so he pointed it at his friend and pulled the trigger and shot him and killed him so And it, so these are, these are traumatic things, but there are, you know, for many of the women, it was sexual abuse. I mean, now we're just beginning to hear of women that have had abuse issues as adults. But I have heard for many years women who had sexual abuse as a, as a child from either their someone in their family or friends of the family or friends of uh, their own friends. So um, these are issues that, you know, we don't deal with in, in our society very well, and uh, so you, they deal with them individually.
0: So not only is the drug problem caused by the criminalization of drugs, but if I understand what you're proposing, it's also caused by the failures of the mental health system, particularly for those under 18.
1: Yeah, well, that's another good question, because it's, it's complicated, so I'm trying to make it, I'm going to try to make it very clear that, that these are all interrelated, So the the criminalization of drugs meant that if you're using drugs, caught with drugs, illegal, illegal drugs, it's fine if you're, you know, alcoholic, but if you're using illegal drugs, then you will be put in jail, right? And so some of the people are using these drugs because they do have issues that they're coping with and they get put in jail. And then they become lifelong drug users. So they never get to the point where they can actually mature out because rather than learning other coping mechanisms to deal with their drug use, they now have a criminal record. So they never get to enter those social roles that might fill their lives or give them help, you know, to deal and cope with uh, things that happen in their use. Now, other people, though, it also is a social component to this, as there always is. And once you are have been criminalized or have a record or are known as the drug user because, you know, you were. now we have drug courts, so you go to drug court, but you still are known as a drug user, other people know, that know this don't want their kids hanging out with you. So you start hanging out with other people that either – have criminal records like yourself or using drugs or somehow alienated from society so you continue to be alienated from mainstream society relationships are very important most of the drug users I have people who use drugs and have problems with drugs are very very sensitive people and we all need relationships But people that are alienated from society need good relationships, even more. And that's what we don't give people. We, we keep them alienated into their own little groups. So now you're a former drug user, you hang out only with former drug users. Right? So what I'm trying to do is trying to, um, I call it social recovery, is to look at the person's life. What, how can we integrate them back into mainstream society? Right? So they're not j- only with recovering drug users or drug users themselves. And I, I was telling you about my brother. He was also going to AA groups where he was, you know, he was at one time in a halfway house where everybody was a recovering drug user. And um, the director asked me, uh, he said, you know, your brother uh, smells like alcohol, so that means he's using alcohol, so we don't want him in this house anymore. Um, my brother, you know, was a heroin addict for many, many years. And I said, well, alcohol, he's using alcohol and he's controlling it. He wasn't getting drunk. They could just smell it on him. And, uh, that was, that was, uh, too much for them. So he had to leave there. And he, the only place that he could find somewhere to live while he was at the, uh, Philadelphia Community College, um, he, I went around with him. I called people. Nobody would, wanted to even rent a uh, room to him. A, you know, boarding house rents a room because, number one, he was a 58-year-old um, college student, and, and they thought that was strange that, you know, why is he back in college at 58 years old? Uh, what's going on with this person? And number two, he had to have a parole officer come and visit the the room and once they heard that, then they knew what was wrong with him, and they didn't want him in. So the only place he could find a room to rent, and this is after months of looking, because I, I put him up in uh, you know in the, in the uh, halfway house for a while, and when they they kicked him out, then you know he was going from couch to couch. The only place he found was in an area where he was the only white person within about ten blocks. But he had lived in prison all his life, which is majority African-American due to the war on drugs, and so he didn't mind this, and uh, that's where he lived.
0: It's interesting to me, Miriam, to hear mm-hmm. you discuss your findings,
1: mm-hmm. because
0: a lot of people don't know this, but I finished 35 years as a county-level probation parole officer. Oh, wow. Both, both <laughs> in direct service management yeah. and training other probation officers. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot about what you're talking about, mm-hmm. and I think one of the problems you're talking about is probation pro people are primarily criminal justice majors, and that is a whole orientation that is very different than what I was a major in, which was social work.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's true. That is very true. Yes, and that's why I I, I go to uh, conferences. I was just at a conference last uh, two weeks ago in in Philadelphia. Which is the uh, American Society of Criminologists, uh, because I I want to let people know how important the social environment is. And when you're isolating people and and forcing them to you know continue in a group called former anything, you're not giving them a chance to to meet other people and to integrate back into society, to expand their social networks. That's what I that's what I'm really trying to. Uh, emphasize here, that we have we can't keep people isolated, whether it be recovery groups, former fel- felons is now a term they use, you know, ex-prisoners, ex-drug users. Um, we have to integrate them back in society by uh, expanding the, their links to other networks so that they have help when they need it or they have uh, friendship when they need it.
0: And at least on the county level, I don't know so much about state, which is where I think your brother was. Um, when you have probation and parole officers of caseloads of a hundred to two hundred, yes, it's hard to find the time to do much with anybody positive.
1: Yeah, and so it, it you know uh, it does take help from everybody. Uh, in fact, the the social recovery um, program that I uh, promote, I actually uh, started a. An, pilot study of this in the drug court um does take the help of other volunteers uh i asked college students to intern to do this so what they what the program does is uh go with people that well this in this case they were in drug court but it could be drug treatment it could be um people that have problems with drugs and are now under the probation system or the parole system and take them out on activities that you do such as you know Running. Uh, if I'm if I'm in a running group, you know, take them on with the running group. Or if I go uh, to listen to poetry, that was a slam poetry was a big one that uh, was very popular uh, when I did this program in in Atlanta. And some of the people that came started writing their own poetry and reading it. And after I left, they were still going to these poetry groups, being introduced to other people who liked to write poetry. So my main My main goal here is to introduce them to something that, number one, they like doing. It it fills up their life when they're thinking about using drugs. Number two, they're introduced to other people that have nothing to do with drugs. I'm not introduced to you because I'm a recovering addict. I'm introduced to you because we both like writing poetry, or we both like bowling, right? So these are the uh, social networks that I'm trying to introduce other people to that don't that don't mean that you have to be a recovering user or you have to tell people that you are. It's just that you have um, activities that you do together that you enjoy, and, and then you meet other people.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We're talking with the author of Hurt, Chronicles of the Drug War Generation, Miriam Borai. Miriam, got to take another commercial break. Okay. So stay with me. And before we go to commercial, James, I know you're waiting on the phone. I've got to do the commercials, but you'll be first up after we're done with the commercials. The WIP time, 736. And we're back. We're talking the drug war, the new book, Heart Chronicles of the Drug War Generation, and a whole lot more with Miriam Borai, Ph.D., academic author. And we're learning a whole lot of important information. My name's Peter Solomon. I promised James, our caller, that we would talk to him next. So James, your question or comment, please.
2: Yeah, good morning, Peter, and good morning to your guest, Ms. Borai. Ms. Borai, uh, I don't, I don't know in in doing your book of the uh, how wide the scope of your your research went. I don't know if you just focused on you know the personal stories or did you focus on any anything about policy also. But uh, I think the war, uh, I think the term drug war is sort of a misnomer, particularly under Nixon and Reagan. And I want to focus on Reagan for a little bit because. Uh, the Reagan drug war, so-called drug war, wasn't really a war on uh, on drugs. It was it was a war on people, uh, because the Reagan drug war was a- actually declared actually at a time when drug use was declining uh, a lot. I mean, it was decline. It was declared in the very early eighties, and drug use at the time was actually at an all-time low. Reagan and probably Nixon too. Uh, his drug war was used basically uh for political purposes he used it he it was used uh as a war on particular populations particularly people of color and the reagan administration uh ran a basically an orchestrated campaign to criminalize uh, a group of people as i said i don't i don't know i don't know if your research in doing your book uh touched on policies at all but what the Reagan drug war did, it didn't, it didn't solve anything. It was never meant to solve anything with drugs. What it was, it was meant to score political points. And I just want to ask you, uh, in terms when you were doing your book, did, did you touch on policies at all uh, during the drug wars?
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, your name is James, did you say?
2: Yes, my name is yeah. my name is Jane. And do, are Jane. you familiar with Michelle Alexander's book? Uh,
1: absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, th- th- I do touch on it, and it's a, a full chapter in my book. Chapter 5 is the racial landscape of the drug right. uh, drug war. And, you know, when you start talking policy, people sort of, like, glaze, their eyes glaze over uh, because it is so complex. But I'm glad you brought it up and you said it very, very succinctly succinctly, because that's exactly what happened. This was a a war on people, and primarily it was a war on African-American people and communities of color. And I do talk about uh, The New Jim Crow, which is Michelle Alexander's book. And I do, in that chapter, Chapter 5, I uh, talk about how this was uh, so much worse for any um, minority population's because um, when you hear their stories, I mean I it's hard for me to even tell their stories without crying uh, because it is it is just devastating and what they have done what the what the drug war has done to communities of color um, I mean is, is just you'll have to read the stories because if I talk about them they, they really are too sad because I, I talk to people personally and I'd listen to their entire story and during, you know, this four or five hour interview that we have together, uh, you know, we have uh, there are times that we're both crying. Yeah, and any, I can yeah, mm-hmm.
2: any, anybody, you know, anybody who, you know, as you've done, you know, who anybody who has done research and has read can plainly see that, you know, the Reagan drug war. It was it was, it was never about trying to solve the problems of drugs. As Miss no. Alexander said, yeah. the drug mm-hmm. war was actually declared. Uh, actually, about three years before crack hit the streets, so it was next. It was never actually about uh, you know uh, trying to solve the drug problems. It was an orchestrated campaign for Ronald Reagan to score political points. Uh, and and if you look at over well, the past hundred years, I mean we've declared various drug wars in this country, and it's usually uh, the U.S. government needing to score political points. Back in the back in the early 1900s, you know it was. Uh, you know they used uh it was marijuana and they connected in the marijuana scare was connected with you know with with mexicans so you know over the years you know various drug wars unfortunately they they weren't drug wars they were they were used by this government unfortunately to you know try to score uh political uh brownie uh brownie points you know yeah,
1: yeah so, absolutely james that's uh i mean that's what happened and Oh, uh, you know, most people don't know that. So when someone says that, they think, "Oh, they're just you know, uh, making this up." But if you actually look at the, uh, you know, the rates of uh, drug use and the rates of imprisonment, you'll you'll see that you're supported completely. Um, I like to I like to stay with you know what people said and what happened to their lives, but. Right. If you, uh, if you look at the social context of this, which we should look at, and, and also the historical context of what was going on politically, um, what you're saying is absolutely supported. And I think no one could say it better than Michelle Alexander did in her book, so I encourage people to read uh, The New Jim Crow if they haven't read it yet. Um, okay,
2: all right. So thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, James. Ms. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Michelle, as you inter- interview these people, did you encounter the – Additional complicating factor for those who were HIV, who were intravenous drug users of HIV.
1: Yes, I did. Yes, and uh, yeah, that that has uh, that's also another chapter in the book when I talk about the health issues, um, HIV being one of them. But you know, I'm I'm glad you brought that up too because uh, if you look at the historical um, context of HIV/AIDS, you'll see that the. What we're doing now, harm reduction, which is, um, you know, um, needle, you know, making sure that people have clean uh, syringes, and also providing uh, free medicine. Right now, we're, a harm reduction effort to combat the opioid overdose death rate is by giving naloxone. All of these harm reduction policies that Europe and the rest of the world adopted much earlier than the United States. Finally, we started adopting them state by state, very slowly, not at the federal level, because when I was in Atlanta, um, you know, the uh, harm reduction center was giving out syringes or, or exchanging, the syringe exchange program was illegal at the time. And so now it's being adopted everywhere. HIV rates went down because they finally adopted harm reduction policies, and uh, also death rates went down. And um, right now we're doing this with the opioid epidemic. We're just beginning to actually allow people to get Naloxone, Narcan, um, through the pharmacies here in Massachusetts where I am. Uh, You can go into a pharmacy and and get Naloxone if you need it. And they have uh, harm reduction centers all over the state. I'm not sure how it is in uh, Pennsylvania right now. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, another harm reduction um, a, a ha- harm reduction program that we don't adopt here that they have in Canada that has proven very uh, successful is what is called safe injection uh, facilities. Have you heard of those? Yes. So I, I went to visit the safe injection facility in Vancouver when it first opened over 10 years ago. And... Um, and then I went to visit it a couple years ago, and it and it's uh, it's grown, you know, with both uh, its size and the amount of people that use it. But what they have found out doing uh, research on the facilities is that it does lower the use uh, – it, it lowers the use of drugs on the streets for sure because people are going in there to, to use their drugs, but also it lowers the overdose rates, uh, overdose death rates. And it also uh, – young people – do not get into drugs at, at the rates that they used to. And that was a, a surprising uh, result because they thought that it would encourage drug use, but actually it discourages drug use among young people.
0: Okay. And we have another caller, Will, but unfortunately, Will, we're going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to ask you to call another time because um, I'm sure we'll be doing this issue again. In the meantime, certainly feel free to check out um, the, the new book by Miriam. Her new book, *Hurt: Chronicles of the Drug War Generation*. My name's Peter Solomon. Miriam, are you encouraged, discouraged, mixed emotions about the Trump administration declaring a war on opioid abuse and appointing Kellyanne Conway the point person?
1: Well, I'm discouraged about everything he's doing about the war, and, uh, the war on drugs. He's increasing it when we were just beginning to um, to uh, to for people to understand that it's not working, number one, and we had to change what we were doing. Uh, and and since Trump's come in, we've just increased it and, and continued uh, with the same thing, that it's not working. Everybody knows it's not working. We have an opioid epidemic right now because the strategies that we used in the past did not work. So why are we using them again?
0: Good question. And I also have to say, Miriam, um, about a year ago, I had back surgery and was given a prescription for oxy and um, My work as a probation parole officer scared the hell out of me so badly that I used it very sparingly, and a month's prescriptions lasted over a year, and there's still some left.
1: Well, you should probably get rid of them <laughs> and uh, they uh, you know now now people know you have uh, prescription uh, drugs they might be asking you for some of them. Um, yeah that that's another thing I did want to say that it's not just you know people think of uh, low income um, people that are using uh, opioids and, and other drugs and it's really middle income high income it, it has no boundaries when it comes to class income, race, gender. Um, I talk about that in my book as well that it that um, everybody is is using drugs but the people that we hear about are the ones that can't afford uh, not to go to jail or not to be exposed so we really need to work on um, solving this problem with uh, real solutions and not uh, not jail.
0: Absolutely and how is Harry today?
1: Well I know I, I I never know how to answer that question um when someone asks, because then I'm giving away the end of the book.
0: Well, is he okay?
1: Um, you know, the community college uh, helped him to um, to find uh, something else to do in life. He, he actually told me at one point that he would always be an addict. That's what he is, because that's what people tell you, once an addict, always an addict. But he stopped being an addict. He wanted to become actually a drug counselor, and he was about to graduate from um, community college, and he and I were gonna open a halfway house together when he got shot uh, because of where he lived and uh, killed.
0: <gasps> what a horrible story. My, my sympathies to you and the family. And, the very and that's
1: because he was forced to live in, in a place where it is dangerous. Now, a lot of people live there. And when the police came and, you know, they said, well, why is your brother living here? I said, well, first of all, other people are living here. Why, why do you ask me that about my brother? You know, we shouldn't have neighborhoods like this. We shouldn't have neighborhoods that people are forced to go to because no other neighborhood will take them, right? What about the people, other people that are living there? They have to, uh, they have to live with, you know, gunshots, uh, random gunshots at night which is how my brother
0: got killed. Amen. Thank you, Miriam Boray-Hurt, Chronicles of the Drug War Generation. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's been my pleasure. It's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions. I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tiedman-Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Nothing left to say, but don't let the holiday season, which is bearing down upon us, make you too crazy. See you soon.